This morning, we're going to continue in our sermon series called Wolves Among Us. We're going to be in the book of Jude. And last week, you heard Pastor Matt preach on verses 1 through 4. And in those, he talked to us about four words that as believers we need to remember. And I just want to recap those really briefly for you, okay? The first word he used is identity. He said, this is who we are. And he reminded us that we are servants of Jesus Christ. And we are devoted slaves to our Lord and Savior. The second word was security. This tells us whose we are. He told us that we are called, we are beloved, and we are kept. What great words. The third thing he said, the word he gave you was adversity. That in the church there is adversity. And Jude's letter discusses the adversity that comes from within the church. And today we're going to talk a lot about the adversary in that adversity. And the fourth word was responsibility. It's the responsibility of all Christ followers to be a people that contend for the faith against those false teachers or apostates that would seek to infiltrate, infect, and destroy the bride of Christ. This is why Jude wrote this letter. This is why he's sounding this alarm to God's people. And today we're going to be in Jude verses 5 through 16. And in these passages of Scripture, I think we're going to see two big ideas that I want to look at and dig into. And they are this. The first is we're going to learn about the description of the wolves. And then second, we're going to learn about the danger that these wolves pose to the church. One of the things that I think is common for all of us that at some point in our life we have endured a warning about a certain way that we've been acting or some behavior that we have that maybe we don't even know it. But if we don't pay attention to it, if we don't recognize it, it's going to be dangerous to it, right? Somebody's warned us about the way that we act or talk or something we were doing. I'll share with you a quick story to this effect. Uh, I had the, uh, when I was growing up, I I had the great pleasure of getting to grow up going hunting with my dad and my younger brother and my grandfather, deer hunting. And uh, like any good uh, uh, parents and grandparents, they taught us gun safety, right? They taught us how to load a gun, how to carry a gun, how to shoot a gun. This is important stuff, right? You need to learn how to do all of those things. So we learned all those things from a young age. And I remember one time we were going hunting with my grandfather. I think I was probably about 14 years old, which would have made my brother nine or 10. And we're walking through the woods and my brother's got his gun and he's holding it like this. So it's aimed down at the gun. And as we're walking, Josh, my brother, is clicking the safety back and forth. Click, 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 right? And my grandfather's becoming increasingly irritated by this. And he keeps saying, Josh, stop. Stop clicking the safety. He'd stop for a second, then he'd start back up. Josh, quit clicking the safety. He kept doing it. We get to the, the, the place where they're going to drop me at my stand, and they drop me off there, and they walk about 10 feet away. And finally, my grandfather had enough, and he turns around and he says, Stop what you're doing. Look at the gun, make sure the safety's on, and pay attention. Because this is a dangerous thing. This weapon is dangerous. He turned and went to walk off. My brother, as he's walking behind him, turns the gun up and looks at the safety. You know, he wants to see if it's on. And what he noticed now was that the red on that safety had worn off. He couldn't tell. So like any good nine-year-old, he decided that the way to figure it out, obviously, was to pull the trigger. That's right. The, The tightness you got in your chest is the appropriate response to that statement. All our members are about 60 feet away, and you hear this loud, boom, gun goes off, followed by a series of phrases and words that I'm not going to repeat here or anywhere, really. (laughs) 
My brother had discharged the weapon and there was a hole probably 10 inches deep in the ground about less than a foot from the back of my grandfather's heels. Josh realized that listening to the warnings that were given to him would have probably been a better idea than just yanking the trigger on that gun. He probably should have stopped messing with the safety. He should have paid attention. You see, Josh or myself, we really didn't see the problem with fiddling with the safety. Well, that is until the gun went off. At that exact moment, we both understood the importance of warnings and that our grandfather had been giving us one that we should have listened to. The only problem was at that point that that revelation was a little little bit late. That hole wasn't going away. You see, the book of Joe, the book of Jude, excuse me, is a warning. It's a flare that's being shot up for God's people, warning us of danger and the danger that's coming from inside the church. You see, in verse 1, Jude said, Beloved, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. What he's saying here is, I wanted to write to you about our shared salvation. This is the letter that I wanted to write. But because the danger of false teachers is so destructive to the church and devastating, the Holy Spirit inspired you to pen this letter of warning. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn to um, verse 5. In, uh, we're going to start in verse 5 uh, in, in, in the book of Jude. Here's what I would say before we get in this. This is far from the first time in God's Word that we hear the, uh, uh, the, the, the warning about false teachers or wolves in the church. In the Old Testament, in just one place, Jeremiah 23, 16, says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. We move to the New Testament. We see in Acts 20, 29 through 30, as the Apostle Paul is talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flocks. And from among your your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I believe that it is so important that we have the ability to not only spot a wolf, but that we understand why wolves are so desperately, devastatingly dangerous to the church of God. Um, as I thought about this, it, I, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about art, but what I do know is that good art and old art is expensive art, right? It costs a lot of money. And when you have art that is worth a lot of money, you insure that art, right? But before these companies will insure these massive pieces of art, they have someone that comes in that's an expert that looks at the art, that x-rays it, that looks at the canvas, that looks at every little detail about the materials that were used to ensure that what they're insuring is actually the real thing, right? Because art forgery is a business. People make great-looking paintings that look exactly like that you and I would think that's the Mona Lisa, sure, when in essence it's not. But there are people that are trained to see that. They know what to look for in the real thing versus the fake thing. And and Jude is going to give us a very good description of the wolves, something we can use to identify these wolves. You know, if we look at verse 4, which was a verse from last week, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
what I want us to see here is that there are three basic statements that give us the main issue with wolves, okay? The first is, is they're ungodly. Jude says this six times in 25 verses. This means we should pay attention. They're ungodly. The second thing he says is they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They use God's grace to justify the sin in their lives. And the third thing is they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So this says they deny the lordship of Jesus in their life. So the question we're going to wrestle with today is how do you spot them? How do you spot the wolf? And I think that uh, Jude gives us three biblical examples, three behaviors, and three illustrations that are going to provide us with a clear description at the wolves, okay? So let's start in verse 5 and go through verse 7. It says this, Now I want to remind you, although once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here Jude gives us three examples, right? The first is the nation of Israel. After Jesus, God had saved them from bondage in Egypt. They were in the wilderness heading for the promised land. And the whole time they grumbled, they complained, they defied God. They lived in rebellion and did things they were told not to. So you know what God did? God allowed those people to die in the wilderness, never seeing the land that they had been promised. The second is angels that rebelled against God. It says that they have been eternally condemned and lastly, Sodom and Gomorrah, sexually immoral and wicked. God literally wiped both of these cities off the face of the earth because of their sin. Now, Jude uses these three stories as illustrations of what, kind, of what this kind of behavior leads to. A rejection of God's authority and the authority of God's word. And if we give in to the desires of our flesh, it leads to one place and that's to destruction. But Jude's going to make a connection here to the wolves in the church, and I don't want us to miss this. It's a good description of what a wolf or a false teacher looks like. So let's look at verses 8 through 10, and it says this, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So the first thing we see here is Jude says in, uh, in verse 8, he says, yet in a like manner, these people. He's identifying these people. Who are these people? I think we can go back to verse 4 to tell us who these people are. These people he's talking about are the ones that he called ungodly. The ones that he said pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into sensuality. The ones that deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. So when Jude said these people, that's the people he's talking about. Next he says that they're relying on their dreams. Now the word here when we talk about dreams are not the dreams like you and I have, right? It's not the dream that I dream where something's chasing me through the woods or whatever, whatever pleasant dreams you have. That's not what he's talking about here. 
The Greek word, and I'm going to say this slowly because I practiced it because it's kind of weird. The Greek word here is pronounced inupniadzomahi. Okay? It's only used a couple of times in the entire Bible. And what it means, it's referring to revelatory dreams, special revelations or prophetic visions given to them by God. We might experience it in today's world as maybe personal insights or some special spiritual insight that they've been given that's only for them. They claim to have this amazing extra biblical insight. They claim to be so much more superior to anyone. There's this sense of spiritual superiority that these wolves exhibit. The problem with their insights is that they're very rarely connected to the Word of God. And Jude tells us that these false teachers use these dreams or these spiritual revelations as the foundation for what he calls in verse 4 their ungodliness. And what we're going to see is this ungodliness, this ungodliness excuse me, exposes itself in three ways. He says they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. I'm going to use three phrases to describe each one of those ways, and, and they are this. The first is they are seekers of pleasure. Okay, this is what we mean by they defile the flesh. The second is they, they seek to be self-governing. This is what he means by reject authority. And the third thing is they're spiritually arrogant. This is what he means when he says they blaspheme the glorious one. So let's talk through each of those for just a moment. When Jude talks about these seekers of pleasure that defile their own flesh, he's talk about, talking about people that give in to the sinful desires of their flesh, okay? Uh, the NIV translation of the Bible says that they pollute their own bodies is the way that it, it, it translates that. And remember in verse 4, it says that these people pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Now, this certainly carries with it the connotation of sexual immorality, but I also think that we should apply it to anything that we give ourselves over to that is in opposition to the will of God. Anything. Anything that our flesh desires that is in opposition to the will of God that we give our lives over to is what can be talked about here. Remember, these are wolves that are wearing sheep's clothing. They look like us. They're going to sound like us. They're going to talk like us. They're going to do their very best to infiltrate and look exactly like you would think a believer looks. And they're going to live their lives as seekers of pleasure, in secret, trying to stay hidden away. Verse 19 says that they are devoid of the Spirit. So if we see them this way, this is why I don't think we should ever be surprised when we see a TV show or TV report or something on the internet where one of these false teachers, one of these wolves has been unmasked, right? And their, their secret life or their unrepentant sin has been brought to light. We shouldn't be shocked by that. Why? Because God's word said that's exactly who they are, right? The second thing we saw is that they're self-governing. So they reject authority. This means they reject all authority. They reject God's authority, the authority of its church, and of its appointed leaders. Now remember, they get to act, teach, say, and live however they want to because they get to lean on the fact that they've been given this special revelation from God, right? They have superior spiritual insight because God speaks to them in a way that's not connected to God's word. And this is important because this allows them to operate without really any divine accountability at all, right? This word they've received is for them. It could be in opposition to God's word. They don't want to have any authority, you see, wolves 
will seek to move people away from spiritual truth, right? So the best, the best way they do that is by rejecting authority or by tearing down the spiritual authority that exists in, the, in wherever they are, okay? That's what they do. Verse 16 describes them as, these are grumblers, malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Here's what I would say. Wolves love to be the one in authority. They refuse to sit under the authority of anyone else, even God. They love to have authority. They don't want to sit under it. And lastly, they're spiritually arrogant. Uh, this, this verse says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, the word glorious ones here is really, uh, there's some difference of opinion a little bit, but most uh, scholars will tell you they're talking about angels. It's a reference uh, uh, to angelic beings. And if we look at it, at the Bible, we'll see that in Scripture, God uses angels uh, to deliver his message to people all the time. So when Jude says glorious ones, the implication is the blaspheming of those who are God's authoritative messengers. That's how we should think about that. Wolves will defame, they will rail on, they will slander, and they will speak evil of those appointed by God to deliver his message. And they will do this especially when that message is in opposition to the one that they're giving, that they say is connected to whatever revelation or spiritual insight that they have. They're going to tear down those people. They are spiritually arrogant. Jude here references a story about uh, the archangel Michael and Satan uh, having some sort of dispute over the body of Moses after he died. Now, obviously, this is not a story that we find in the Bible. Uh, this is coming from an extra-biblical Jewish text. Uh, he uses a couple of these in, these in these scriptures. They are not from the Bible, but here's what I would tell you about that. Uh, he uses them to bolster the point he's making because he's writing a letter to a almost exclusively Jewish audience, and they certainly would have known these stories. It would be much like me sharing a story with you from another book or quoting from another pastor or theologian, right? They're not the canon of Scripture, but they're used to support the point that Jude is making here. And the point that he's making about the dispute over Moses' body is he says that not even the, angel, even the angels weren't blasphemous or arrogant enough to rebuke Satan under their own authority. He had to use God's authority to, re, to rebuke Satan, right? Jude goes on to say that these false teachers are like unreasoned animals, blaspheming all that they do not understand. This builds on the idea that these false teachers are governed by their passions. They're governed by the desires of their flesh. They're like animals seeking only to satisfy themselves. And they're arrogant enough to believe that they can and they will get away with it. But the problem with that is God's word tells us that they will be destroyed by that. Remember I told you they give uh, three behaviors and three illustrations. Well, here are the three illustrations. If we look at verse 11, now, these three, he's going to give you three stories as illustration from the Bible. These stories would have been very well known to this Jewish audience that he's writing to. And 11 says, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Just really briefly about this. Uh, Cain, the story of Cain and Abel, Cain offered a sacrifice by his own will and authority and then murdered his brother Abel when he obeyed God and gave the proper sacrifice. Balaam, for personal gain, abandoned the truth of God. And Korah was Moses' cousin. 
And he led a, uh, a rebellion against Moses because he wasn't given the leadership that he thought he deserved. And these three stories illustrate perfectly what we just saw Jude talking about. The wolves are seekers of pleasure, just like Balaam. They want to self-govern, just like the rebellious Korah, right? And they're spiritually arrogant like Cain. And here's what I would say. If you see these things, you need to sound the alarm. You need to sound the alarm. Why? Because they're dangerous. One thing we need to remember about wolves, regardless of what they may look like in the moment, they are always, always, always dangerous. The description that Jude gives of these false teachers is vital for Christ followers to know so that we can identify the wolves that might be in our midst. Identification is so important because, well, really because wolves are so dangerous. And we're going to take a look at what Jude says about the danger that these wolves pose to the church of Jesus Christ. As I thought about the idea of danger and warning and all this, well, it struck me that uh, an important part of a warning is telling someone what the danger of it is, right? Not just a warning about something. I need, you to, I need you to explain to me what the danger is. So I came up with a good old-fashioned East Texas analogy here that all of us will understand. So if you turn on Channel 7, if there's any sort of uh, uh, bad weather in the area, you'll find a gentleman named Mark Skirto, right? And sometimes you'll see he's got his sport coat off and he's got his sleeves rolled up and they're pushed up and he's very intensely looking at the screen at the weather but what he doesn't say is guys man this weather looks really bad you should probably pay attention thanks have a good night he doesn't just warn you that there's bad weather he tells you what the danger is after the warning he says this storm could produce hail right there's lightning with this storm stay inside your house I'm warning you this is dangerous he tells you to find what a small windowless interior room, right? Why? Because the storm might produce tornadoes. He doesn't just give us the warning. He tells us what the danger is. And Jude's going to do the same thing. So I want us to look at four dangers that are presented by the wolves. So let's look at verses 12 and 13. He says this, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. There's four dangers here, I think. And the first is this, wolves are destructive. He calls them hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Let me ask you a question. I think we all know this. What does a hidden reef do? It tears a hole in a ship, right? The ship doesn't see it. It's hidden away. It rips a hole in the bottom of the ship, causing that ship to sink. This is what false teachers and the wolves do to God's church. It says here that they sit with God's people in fellowship, and just like the reef to the, fit to the ship, eventually they will tear the church apart, right? If a ship hits a reef, it's doing damage, right? The only, the only question is how much damage is it going to do? The second thing we see is that they're deceitful, says they're waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. 
When we talk about a waterless cloud or what he says here is a fruit tree that doesn't produce during harvest time, uh, I thought of it this way, that we're talking about something that promises one thing, but then doesn't just underdeliver, but doesn't deliver at all. I know this is going to be a stretch for you guys, but I want you to think with me for a moment about a, a blazing hot Texas afternoon in the summer. I know, hard to imagine. But think about standing in your front yard looking at your dead grass going, I have no idea how this, I, I really, I could use some help with this. It's, it's hot. You look out over the horizon and you see the black clouds kind of starting to gather, right? And you think, man, thank goodness. You know, that, that's going to come. It's going to bring rain for the grass. It's going to be refreshing and cool at least for a few minutes until it becomes humid and unbearable once again. And they roll in and you watch only to see them pass right over without one drop of rain. That's what he's talking about here. Waterless clouds, they promise this thing that you need so desperately and they never, ever, ever deliver. False teachers give the, give the church everything that to the untrained eye seems like something we should need only to never provide true biblical nourishment, not one drop. They put on a good show, they're entertaining, but in the end, it really is all show, no go. There's no substance, there's no meat, there's no connection to God's word. Remember, the special revelation allows them to act and teach in this way. They are deceitful. The third thing we see is that they are disruptive. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. This is the picture of waves that crash onto the shore, making loud noise, bringing with it all the debris from the sea that there is, right? They look great, make a lot of noise, but then when it recedes, what do you see on the beach? A bunch of seaweed, a bunch of garbage, and a bunch of trash that's left behind. Well, these, first, these uh, false teachers, they will come in, they will disrupt the life of a body of believers, and they will leave behind collateral damage that is unbelievable. Just like when the wave recedes though, when we do root them out and when they are gone, all they leave behind is a mess, a trail of broken people, broken hearts, broken relationships, and a group of people that are trying to navigate their way back and understand the grace of God because someone has led them astray. They are disruptive. And lastly, they're destroyed. That's what God's word tells us. He says, they're wandering stars for who the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, the phrase, that phrase wandering stars, here's what I'll tell you. True stars don't wander. They're fixed, right? They're fixed position. We know this because for thousands of years, people have used stars in the night sky to navigate from one place to another place. When he says wandering stars, we should think more along the lines of a shooting star or a meteor, Right? It's a bright thing that pops up in the night sky, shoots across only to fade and disappear into the dark of night. Now, this sort of star, it's a bad idea to try to navigate on it, right? If you're able to follow it and you expect it to get you to a particular destination, chances are the wandering star, the shooting star, is going to lead you somewhere you never intended to be. And these false teachers are just like that. They're bright, they show up, they burn bright, but then ultimately they burn out. And the word says that they're condemned to the gloom of utter darkness forever. And if we as God's people don't identify them and try to root them out, 
if we use that wandering star as the fixed point that it is not, we only will be led astray. And we will only suffer the same fate as the false teacher himself. We can be condemned to the gloom of utter darkness forever. They are, des- they are destroyed. These false teachers will promise you good things and never deliver. They will feed their own selfish desires and egos to the destruction of themselves and the people that follow them. And they will lead you on a path that moves you further away from Christ, not closer to him. The danger is real, and we should all heed the warning that Jude has given us. Because Jude tells us that there is only one thing that awaits the apostate false teachers, and that is destruction. Really, all throughout verses 5 through 16, Jude tells us that the character and actions of these people carry with them the ultimate penalty. I mean, look at verse 15. He says, God's going to come to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God will be the one who's judging these people. He will judge all of them. And the justice of God will be seen by everyone. When he says he comes to convict, what he really means there is he comes to convince. And I don't mean convince like argue, convince. I mean that when the time comes, all of their ungodly deeds will be laid bare. All of their sinful desires will be laid bare. And even the people, the false teachers themselves, will agree that God's justice is right because they will be convinced of their wickedness. There won't be any arguing on behalf of the defendant. There'll be a judge, there'll be a conviction, and there'll be a sentence. And what does Jude tell us that sentence is? They will spend eternity in the gloom of utter darkness forever. Eternal separation from the glory of God for these false teachers and for those that follow him. When I was given this sermon to preach in in, in this uh, series, I recognized that it wasn't exactly a cheerful passage of Scripture necessarily. As I wrote the sermon and worked through it, I realized this might sound harsh. It might be a serious message, right? But then I was uh, reminded that God loves his church and, and his people so deeply, so much, that he deals harshly and seriously with anyone that would seek to hurt it, to defame his messengers, to pervert his grace and to twist his word for their own benefit and to the destruction of his church. God deals with it. This message is, tells this harsh story because it is the truth of God's word. But we land here at the end, you say, well, what do I do with it? You told me how to identify them, you gave me a description. Uh, you told me about the danger. What do I do with that? I would tell you there's no magic bullet here. There's no great magnifying glass necessarily that's special to us that I can give you to find these things. But there's two things I think that are important. If you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God is the most important tool that we have to discern and identify false teachers. Do you know how I know, like the art forger, what is a lie? It's because I've been embraced by the truth. God's word says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to be able to identify the false teacher, you got to know where the truth is, and you have to be surrendered to that 
right? Otherwise, we get led astray because false teachers tell us things that our flesh wants to be true, right? If you don't know Jesus, then salvation offered by the gospel is the answer to how we identify and root out false teachers. Jesus came to defeat our sin through his death on a cross that was not his own. Was raised to life to defeat sin and death. And those that put their faith and trust in him are given his Holy Spirit. And through that Holy Spirit, you're allowed to, you're given the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is a lie and what is the truth, what is real teaching of God and what is someone who is delivering false teaching. It is the first, it is the most important and it is the best weapon that we have against it. The second, for believers, for those of us that belong to Jesus, I would give you the word sanctification. This is a big word that we use that means growing more and more and more in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. As believers, the more we connect ourselves to God's word and learn about it, the more deeply we seek God's face in prayer, the more we connect with the people of God that allow us to have these difficult discussions and talk about the, the difficult and deep things of God, we grow more into the image of Jesus and therefore we grow closer to him and we're more easily able to identify the false teachers that seek to infiltrate God's church, the wolves that have come to destroy. Told you there's no magic. You have to know Jesus. You have to have been radically rescued and changed by his person and his work, given his Holy Spirit, and then spend a lifetime growing more and more and more into the image of the truth. That's how we identify false teachers and wolves. That's how we root them out of God's church. And don't misunderstand, it is important because they are dangerous, they are destructive, they are disruptive. And ultimately, we don't want to end up like them, which is destroyed. This is why Jude wrote this letter. So as we close, here's my call to you. If you're in this room today and you do not know Jesus, you have never surrendered your life to him, I, I, I would beg you, do not leave here the way that you came in. Don't allow the teachers of the world to, to drag you off in directions that Jesus never intended for you. Jesus' word is the truth. He has told us he is the way, he is the life. His Holy Spirit gives discernment. Surrender your life to him receive the blessing that is an eternity in his glory and have the tool of the Holy Spirit to help you discern the things that are right and wrong. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to chase after teachers that tell you exactly what you want to hear. Remember, what they say sounds good. And they may sprinkle a little Jesus on it here and there to try and fool you. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have his Holy Spirit, you will be fooled. There is no doubt about it. Today can be the day that you change that. Today can be the day that you surrender your life to Jesus and you're never the same. Don't walk out of here the same way you came in. And for those of us that belong to Jesus, I would tell you that this altar is open. You come and confess the ways that we have not sought Jesus in such a way that would allow us to identify these things. Identify the things in your life that might look like a wolf. We've all got them. Let's be a people that stand on the truth of God's word. Let's identify the wolf. Let's heed the warning that God's word has given us and pay attention. This is what God's calling us to. This is why Jude wrote this letter. This is why God has put it in his word to his people. It's a serious business and we need to be seriously about it. So as we close, 
I'm going to pray for us, and when we're done, you're going to stand, and Philip's going to sing, and we're going to be down front. And if you need to know Jesus Christ, come see me. I would love nothing more than to spend the remainder of my time telling you all about him. The altar's open if you need to be prayed for. We will be down here for you. I will tell you that I'm grateful for the time I've gotten to spend with y'all this morning. I'm grateful to Pastor Todd Connitz and Pastor Matt Darby for allowing me to stand in their pulpit. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the great honors of my life to be able to do this. And I pray that God uses his word today to bless you, to grow you more deeply in love with him, and to give us eyes to see that uh, there's danger that's out there and we need to be a people that uh, have our heads up looking for it. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do, Lord. I'm eternally grateful for your word that provides us with direction and correction, Lord. I'm thankful for the letter of Jude, God. While it's not easy, it can be difficult, Lord, it provides us with something that's vital to the church, Lord, the ability to discern the truth from a lie, God, and to root out those who would seek to damage your church. So I pray that in this room today, Lord, that if someone's far from you, you would draw them to you, Lord. I pray that if there are those in here that know you, that have not grown more in love with you, God, I pray that you would begin a process in them right now that would draw them closer and closer and closer to you so that they can identify the dangers that exist for your church. God, I love you. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for these people. I'm thankful for your presence that was here today, God. I pray that you were glorified. Thank you for Jesus and for what he's done. And I pray all these things in his mighty and holy name.